Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you through another show. It's a special show this week uh, to recognize the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, a horrific time for New York, for America and for the whole world. And um, we wanted to pay respects to those who passed in those um, attacks and just look at the impacts that it had on people's lives, not just in New York, in DC, and obviously people involved on Flight 93 and, and and how it affected everybody, as well as people in the PR industry. So we've um, put together a special package of content, and myself and executive ed- editor Frank Washkoot will talk about that. But first of all, we're going to hear an interview from Josh Sherwin, who's the Chief Advancement Officer at the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. Obviously, they've got a lot of activities planned this week, and we weren't able to talk to Josh live, but we're very pleased that we got some time with him. And we're going to hear from him about their um, campaigns and their hashtag Never Forget, especially. Um, so let's uh, go over to the interview with Josh. Well, hi, everyone. I'm very pleased to be here with Josh Sherwin, who's the Chief Advancement Officer at the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. And uh, we're going to talk about the plans to mark this landmark 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. First of all, Josh, thanks so much for joining us and taking the time out of your schedule at such a busy time of year. I'm glad to be with you, Steve. So give us, uh, obviously, 20 years on, um, incredible that it's gone so quickly but give us a sense of how you've built up to this as an organization and what the mission of the memorial and museum is and some of the activities that you're doing this week to to mark this landmark um, anniversary sure well as you can imagine like so many nonprofits and museums um, the last 17 months or so has not been without its challenges um, but through it all, we have kept very focused on the approaching milestone of two decades since the 9-11 attacks. Um, and most pronounced within that um, is really an acknowledgement that 20 years is commonly understood as a generation. And what that means is that for younger audiences, for kids in college today, really anyone under the age of 25, 9/11 is not a memory or is not a memory lived but is really history learned. Um, and so at the memorial and museum, whether through our programming or elements that we offer on site in terms of the museum and memorials experiences, we have been very focused on how in this moment do we begin a conversation, with really a new generation that has now arrived um, for whom 9-11 is is more of a distant experience, but is still something that very much informs the world in which we all live. Um, And so at the center of what we do will, of course, be uh, the commemoration ceremony on our site on the morning of 9-11, where once again, 
the names of the nearly 3,000 victims killed that day and also on February 26, 1993 in the first bombing at the World Trade Center will be read aloud. Um, we will mark six key moments of silence um, tied to the events of that day um, and, and pause as a nation to remember, to reflect, and to fulfill the collective promise we made to never forget those killed um, and use it as an opportunity um, to help educate uh, a new generation about what we shared in the aftermath of 9-11, which was very much about the unity, resilience, and hope that lifted up a city, a nation, and really a global community. Yeah, it's always a really emotional ceremony, that, and um, brings it home, the amount of names and the families there that are involved in the ceremony. Does it, just from a purely practical point of view, the fact that it falls on a Saturday this year, does that bring any different elements to it, to to um, the rest of the week? For, for us, not really. Um, you know, we have been helping observe this ceremony um, on our site for many years now, and the day of the week, Um, does not change what is at the center of it. Um, It does mean, though, for some of our education programs, for example, our anniversary in the schools webinar, um, which last year um, reached over 320,000 young people and is on track um, to reach far more in this milestone year. Um, Hard to do it on a Saturday um, when Kids are not in school, so that will take place on a Friday, for example, the the, the 10th. Um, but beyond some modifications like that, not not a real not a real change for us in what we what we do each year. Yeah, and your point about never forget is uh, a good one. I was talking to some members of our reporting team who are in their twenties, and they, you know, you're right. It is a generation thing. They remember members of their family, you know, arriving home that day who may have had to walk, you know, miles, uh, obviously no public transport and walked from Manhattan right up to the Bronx or wherever. And, and that was their sort of memory, but it's still maybe not as an abiding memory uh, as it is for, for those of us who remember the, the attacks. And and you, you'll never forget, you, you released a PSA and worked with John Legend to that actually featured the granddaughter of uh, one of the federal, uh, well, one of the fire department Chiefs, uh, tell us a bit about that and how that went down. You released that um, at the end of July, I think. Yeah, a a, a while back, we started working with the creative advocacy firm Subject Matter to develop a campaign around this moment that would really highlight it uh, to the public, not just locally um, in the New York area, but, but nationwide. Um, and so we developed, as you noted, in partnership with John Legend, I think a really powerful message um, and in the form of a PSA that highlights an 11-year-old Chloe Downey, the granddaughter of FDNY Chief Ray Downey, who was the head of Special Operations Command on 9-11 and tragically killed that day. And she's really representative of this new generation that we've been talking about on a journey through the museum, really trying to find her grandfather to understand his experience and those with whom he served, the people he was trying to help save, um, and, and find herself in all of that. 
Um, and so we hope through the PSA, and we've been very lucky to work with, you know, a series of different partners who are providing donated support for it airing in, in a lot of different places um, to help start a conversation with with young people about what this experience is and and the context um, that they need to to understand it and sort of walk away from it with an appreciation of of how we're all connected to one another still um, and how even in the face of adversity, unfathomable loss of life, we we have it within ourselves to to rise above it, um, to show compassion in the face of of, of tragedy, um, and and really answer challenges as they come to us together, um, and and that's the the hope, and it's it's meant to start a conversation um, that can continue well past the anniversary as well. Are there other sort of uh, activities planned or activations? And are you aware of any other corporations that are doing things respectfully, of course, around the anniversary? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of great partners. Um, If you visit neverforget.org, you will see them listed. But, you know, whether it is Walmart or Cantor Fitzgerald or Bank of America, Bloomberg, so many who are working with us. Um, and then when you move past um, just sort of um, philanthropic support into other areas of partner partnership, you know, the networks airing the PSA, Clear Channel Outdoor, so many who are trying to help us create key moments. One of them will be what we're calling Remember the Sky. Um, and Steve, I don't know if you have visited the museum. Um, yeah. Yeah, for anyone that has, and you no doubt remember, there is a uh, monumental art installation. It's uh, made up of 2,983 individual paper tiles, one for each victim killed on 9-11 and in February 93, um, but each a different shade of blue. Um, And it is called Trying to Remember the Color of the Sky on that September morning, and it was created by an artist named Spencer Finch. Um, And it taps into, you know, I think the idea that while 2 billion people, it's estimated, experience 9-11 in one way or another, um, if there is a universal memory, it is of that crystal clear blue sky that existed across our country that day and how it was darkened by the ultimate um, tragic events that unfolded. And so it inspired us to create something called Remember the Sky, where we're asking the public to, on the morning of 9-11, post a picture of their sky, no matter where they are, no matter the weather, post it to Instagram with the hashtag Never Forget 9-11. Um, and through that, create a shared moment of remembrance and help foster a conversation on social and elsewhere that can be this bridge between memory and history. Um, and so we're, we're excited to see that, that take hold and, and create that, that moment together where we can also acknowledge how we're all connected to each other underneath the same sky. Yeah, it's incredible. The, uh, 
the, the, that is an abiding memory, and it's incredible how often on 9-11 the weather is like that. So that's, uh, I hope everybody gets involved with that. It's, it's important not to forget the impact on the Pentagon and Flight 93. And uh, I was very struck um, that even in my home country, the UK, this 9-11 was the single worst terrorist attack in terms of deaths of British citizens more than any other um, event. So it is a, it's not, it's a, it's not just a New York thing. It's obviously heavily associated with it because of those iconic in- images. But how do you bring in the rest of the U.S., uh, especially the, the parts specifically affected, and also the, the rest of the globe? Which, which yeah, all- yeah. And, and and on your latter observation, Steve, there were victims from over ninety different countries that day. Um, and whether you look at the victims or you look at how we responded. Um, it, it was not just a local or national event. It was a global event, both because of how we responded and the consequences. Um, and we have always, throughout everything we do, um, been very privileged to work with the folks at the Pentagon and at the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, um, while we each have our own ceremonies on the anniversary Um, They are partners in so much of what we do, um, so much of the programming that we create. Um, And I think you will see, you know, part of that Remember the Sky activation is to create that opportunity for participation by anyone from wherever they are. Um, Our campaign is national, Um, you know, the, the, the airing of the PSA, the donated media and paid media elements of this, um, they will be, you know, rolling out and have already rolled out to folks uh, across the country. Um, So I think in both the message we're hoping to share, as well as some of the activations we've created, there's opportunity for participation from all over. One of the programs I mentioned earlier, the Anniversary in the Schools program, you know, that we have had um, since we started it um, a few years ago, we've had participation from students in all 50 states, um, and that's been consistent. And one of the things we have added each year um, is more participants from around the globe. I think last year we had over a dozen countries represented, and, and, and I bet we'll have more than that this year. We also have, in partnership with the American Library Association, a downloadable poster exhibition um, that is available now that libraries across the country can register for, um, download, print, and display in their own communities. Um, And, you know, something that was originally conceived pre-COVID as a traveler exhibition traveling exhibition, excuse me, that would have had in some senses a more limited footprint, you know, has now been accessed by nearly 2,000 libraries from across the country. Um, So some great ways we are trying to take this programming out um, to folks wherever they are. Yeah, I think on the theme of never forget, I think if you live in New York and you walk around any part of the city, any borough, you see, uh, you walk past the firehouse, you see the pictures of 
the firefighters who perished on that day. It is part of the fabric of the city, and we and we do always remember it. Um, on the day, well, if you're in a bar in Manhattan, you can guarantee there'll be firefighters in there in uniform. I always make sure I buy them a drink cause, to recognise their service. Um, but what, what's your reflection? We've we've just, you know, America has just withdrawn from Afghanistan after 20 years. Um, of a conflict that was kind of born out of the impact of 9-11. How do you reflect on that as someone who lives this every day in, in your daily job? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, Steve, there are so many um, important stories um, and events that have unfolded since 9-11. You know, when the museum was constructed, of course, a beginning and end to that story had to be designated. And so, so much of what is, what is there physically contained within our exhibitions is tied to what happened on 9-11, the, the, what preceded it, and what immediately followed it. Um, but through our programming, whether it's our public programs or our special exhibition, we seek to address these um, continual or continuing unfolding stories. Um, and, and whether that is um, the tragic situation in Afghanistan, um, whether that is the health effects that are 9-11 related that have been suffered. You know, you mentioned um, first responders that you may see on the anniversary and how you always acknowledge their service. Um, you know, a great unfolding story since 9-11 has unfortunately been the way many of those who responded, whether in New York or that came from around the country or even some that came from around the world, um, have since begun to suffer illnesses, um, some of which have become lethal um, and have led to more than a thousand deaths. Um, And so I think in so many ways, we try at the institution to put these experiences and events um, in context. Um, And that's, you know, why doing it, you know, that this is exactly the ways um, in which 9-11 is still informing the world we live in and why it's so important to help those who didn't live through that experience understand how that's happening and, and, and how to process these events. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, it's, it's notable that I think many more NYPD officers have died since 9-11 than did actually on the day because of related diseases and continue to do so. So that's another reason why we should never forget. That's right. For sure. Um, just, just to wrap it, wrap this up. How do you want, what, if you're, if you're sitting there the, the weekend, you know, the week after this anniversary, how would you want to reflect on it? What would you like it to have achieved? And what, what do you think it should say about moving forward about how we re- remember what happened on that fateful day? Sure. I, you know, I hope everyone, of course, on the day of 9-11 will um, take a moment um, to reflect and to remember if you are a parent with young children, we have resources available on our site that can help you um, talk about this experience, not just from an educational standpoint, but it's a deeply personal experience and one not always easy to share with young people if you lived through it. Um, 
we hope that you will take part in remembrance, that you will take an action um, through the Remember the Sky activation um, and post to Instagram um, and help us build this conversation and move it forward as we look to the next 20 years. Um, And of course, we are an organization that relies on the generosity of our partners and donors and visitors. Um, I hope you will visit neverforget.org and learn more about how you can support the programming um, that we've been that we've been talking about, because, um, of course, that that is a, a, a key piece of the puzzle for, for us, too. Um, but but more than anything else, um, it is an opportunity to recommit ourselves 20 years later to remembering the 2,977 individuals killed that day to honor the service of the brave first responders to ran, who ran toward danger to save others that day, and to reconnect with the lessons of, of unity and resilience and hope um, and recenter ourselves with them um, and be mindful of what we can achieve and how we can come together, even in the face of the darkest moments. So that that would be my hope, Steve. Yeah, well said, Josh. Uh, Definitely agree with you on that. And if you come to New York, make sure you go visit the museum. They did suffer like a lot of other, you know, uh, attractions, if if that's the right word, um, with with ticket revenues in 2020. So go and support the uh, Memorial and Museum and and go and learn about it. That's the most important thing. So, yeah, that message of never forgetting really, really a crucial one so thanks so much josh we wish you well with all the events that are happening around it and thank you so much for joining us on the pr week appreciate the time steve thanks okay that's that was the interview with josh Cherwin, chief advancement officer at the national september 11th memorial and museum and we hope all the activities go off as planned this weekend and uh, thank you josh for joining us really appreciate it frank um welcome it's good to be with you again a a poignant time in uh, new york's history especially but we mustn't forget the other parts of the country that were affected in uh, dc the attack on the pentagon and, and and of course the people who died on flight 93 and we'll talk a bit more about that as we go through it where were you um during the that day everybody kind of remembers where they were don't they yeah, of course. Um, I I was in uh, my senior year uh, of college at Fairfield University in Connecticut, um, which is, I guess you could say, on the edge of the New York metro area. Um, it's a town that uh, a lot of people commute into uh, the city from. And a lot of my classmates um, and uh, just people I went to school with uh, had parents that worked in Manhattan, had parents that worked in lower Manhattan. And so uh, immediately you you uh, began thinking about the, the people that you knew and that you were around and, and how it affected them, though, though not directly. They weren't there, uh, you know, except for folks who were interns at the time. But um, it, it really had an impact on on people just just unbelievably far and wide and really across the country. Uh, who knew people that worked either in Lower Manhattan uh, or in Washington D.C. Um, uh, and you know uh, associated with with Flight 93 as well. So I mean, it's 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 one of those things that you really hope you never 
live through anything like that ever again. Yeah, it was an unprecedented day. And um, we spoke to a bunch of colleagues actually at Haymarket Media, which is the company that owns PR Week, and talked to them about their experiences because we actually have Back then, we had an office at 170 Broadway, which was only a block and a half from the World Trade Center, housed some of our medical publishing um, uh, brands. And um, we also had a, an office on 220 Broadway. And what I, what I felt from talking to people was their stories weren't special in, the, in, in that they were mirrored thousands of times, maybe millions of times throughout the city. You could probably go into any company in New York and you would have been able to listen to similar stories. So there were stories of people trying to get away from uh, the uh, area when it happened, the sort of confusion, the panic. Nobody knew what was going on. It's difficult to remember that this was 20 years ago is not a long time, but there was no smartphones, there was no social media. People very much relied on landlines still. There was, uh, you know, the main TV channels. So that getting information was difficult. And there was lots of rumors and panic spreading around. One of our colleagues, Jim Burke, t- told the story of ending up in a um, trying to get over the Brooklyn Bridge and trying to get a ferry and then eventually landed in a bar where the bar owners were helping people out. They were, they were giving people drinks because, they, you know, they, they were exhausted. They were a lot of people coming in covered in dust. They were cleaning them. They were letting them use the landline. Uh, they were watching the TVs, and that became a, a focal point. But people just – that was the confusion of the day, right? And and also, this, you know, obviously so many people died, 3,000 people in in the building – so many close escapes as well. One of our colleagues uh, talked about her brother who worked in the North Tower and who made it was making his way down the stairs. And, uh, you know, there was a, a tannoy announcement that they could go back up to their desks. And his boss and some of his colleagues did so, whereas he just took that on the off-the-cuff decision to carry on, and, and that saved his life because, sadly, his, his colleagues didn't survive and he had friends at canter fitzgerald which was so heavily hit wasn't it and um our uh, colleague chris daniel spoke to folks um who were involved with canter and we, in the aftermath and people at edelman what what talk us through what uh, what chris found out frank yeah um really striking and and i to take you a little bit behind the scenes i think that if you if you edit enough copy for a long time you know it's it's rare that you really uh, get to to sentences and quotes in a story that that really just just strike you and really kind of hit you in the stomach. But um, you know, I felt that way reading uh, some comments that uh, Matt Harrington, now uh, a global executive at Edelman, and he was leading Edelman's New York, uh, went on to work uh, at Cantor Fitzgerald, and and you could tell the the memories are just just so fresh uh, for him uh, talking about Saria Clark. Uh, who was the communications VP at Cantor Fitzgerald. And, and just a little bit of background for, for some folks, Cantor Fitzgerald had more than 50% uh, of its staff lost uh, on that day because they, they were on the 101st to 105th floors uh, of One World Trade Center. Uh, but Matt talks about just, uh, you know, the, how she had a passion for traveling, uh, you know, how she was a hard worker, but balanced these two parts of her lives really well. Um, and, and 
you, you can just tell so much about the day is still uh, just so fresh in people's minds. Uh, just listening to, uh, just reading him talking about this sort of thing. Yeah, and Edelman was involved in setting up um, PR support for Cantor Fitzgerald execs after the event at a, a hotel downtown, weren't they? Because there was yeah. so much media um, interest there, and clearly that needed navigating, and and they were people were, were just not in any position. And it was so tragic for that company. Hundreds and hundreds of people died. Yeah. And uh, uh, very sad. Um, the other PR pro that um, famously, I guess, was involved was Mark Bingham, who was actually on Flight 93, wasn't he? He was a PR professional from the West Coast, but who'd been visiting in, in New York City. Tell us a bit about Mark and his legacy. Yeah, it's... It's a tremendous legacy, really. It's it's because he's he's later been confirmed to have been one of the people on board Flight 93 who fought back against uh, the hijackers, and of course that was a plane that crashed uh, outside of Pittsburgh, and and it's widely believed that it it was targeting uh, a building in Washington, whether the White House or the Capitol, uh, and the passengers on the plane saved. Um, uh, saved a lot of folks on the ground by by essentially taking the the plane down. I, you you again you know another situation where you read Judy Curtis, uh, who was his business partner at the Bingham Group, uh, which was then folded into SIPR, which was a, a technology uh, agency in San Mateo. Uh, it, it just just talking about him, you know, being sort of a gentle giant that he was he was six foot five, but a, a and a rugby star. Uh, in college and then afterwards. And uh, as she described him as physically huge and fearless, but also, you know, kind to employees, you know, really sort of making them feel like family. Um, but afterwards, she and people that worked with Mark uh, did a lot of pro bono work helping his mother deal with the media attention that she was receiving. And she became an activist in the years after his death. Um, but it, it's remarkable to read about him because he, he was he was 31 at the time and, and he had done so much. He had helped launch this agency. Uh, he obviously had a great reputation in the in the industry um, and, and obviously just such a heroic thing that he and other passengers did on that flight once they had gotten word of, of what was happening elsewhere. Yeah, it really was. It really was. And um, rest in peace, Mark, um, for the heroism that you displayed and others on that plane. Um, it was in a, from a sort of crisis communications point of view, it was interesting to hear from people who were around at the time working on behalf of the airlines, for example. And I was struck by Tony Wright, who uh, worked for Weber Shandwick on the American Airlines account back then. And it, it really was he says we we just couldn't have planned for a scenario like that, right? Every other scenario they had was getting their planes off the ground. Well, uh, to go to a crash site, for example. Well, obviously they couldn't do that in this uh, uh, context. So all the corporate comms plans they'd had were, you know, sort of redundant. So he says that crisis planning changed as a result of 9-11 and it became about identifying workflows instead of trying to plot every step to every possible scenario. So it was interesting to hear from people at the time who were actually involved in the crisis comms scenarios, wasn't it? And it's, it's interesting to hear them talk about how some of those experiences influenced what they've done in the past few years about talking to clients 
about when is it appropriate to get back to normal, quote unquote, yeah. and when is it appropriate to do normal activations. Um, so it definitely informs people's thinking to this day. Um, he has a, a pretty remarkable anecdote about hiring hiring interns to to just refresh internet coverage um, and just just you know, to try to keep up with the latest uh, because there were no automated platforms for monitoring at the time. Um, and also, as, as he described it, having a direct line into CNN and, and talking about when things were inaccurate, because there were there were a lot so of much misinformation. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, and some of that, just pertaining to the airlines, was just how many of these flights had to be diverted out of U.S. airspace, um, and that was that was one thing that he worked on. I, I think if any if anybody's ever worked. In communicate any of our listeners who have ever worked in communications for an airline, and I, I can say if you've interviewed anybody who works in communications in an airline, you you know the scenario planning that that they do is really it's top notch. They really truly try to think of everything, and and they do, or at least they did years ago. Have have these gigantic binders and books of what to do mm-hmm. in what case, you know, this case, that case, um, and, and so. It, Again, you know, words sort of fail you in in trying to talk about the enormity of this situation and just how unprecedented and, and, and terrible it was for so many people. But also, some sometimes you just got to rip up the binders and you know you got to act on yeah. instinct because you can't you can't um, model everything. Um, and it's interesting. A bunch of people made the comparison between nine eleven and and what we've gone through with COVID. Josh Ernest at United being one of those. You know the resilience and the instinct to pull together that everybody has shown uh, to to come together to face these massive challenges. Um, yeah. The other the other part of our coverage was. Talking to other Haymarket folks, especially those on PR Week, because um, I remember Jonah Bloom had literally just come over to the US. I used to work with Jonah in London. I was still in London at the time. And he'd just come over to edit PR Week um, uh, a few weeks beforehand. And and this was his sort of baptism into New York uh, life. So Jonah's written a piece for us with his memories of the day and just really captured some of that confusion about what do we do. He, He mentioned sort of at first being drawn to go down there and see what he could do to help and then suddenly realizing well what am i going to be able to do and and everyone else was running the other way so he uh went to the office and sort of gathered the troops if you like and gideon fiddleside our colleague was uh there as well and they told a great great stories about literally ripping up what they were going to do it was back in the days of print so they were they ripped up the week weekly plans and, and put a whole new magazine together to represent what the industry was doing to pull together to support their clients, their people. Um, Really compelling stories. And also Louise Morin, um, uh, now Boyle, who was our production manager, she'd flown the day before to Chicago for a trade show. And um, she had to get it. I think she got a train from Chicago eventually. Four days later, it was supposed to be an overnight trip. And it took 26 hours, the train, and she was constantly on the phone trying to get the printers and the repro houses organized. Our repro house worked out of our office. So great stories of, you know, just pulling together to get things done. And again, I think that demonstrates the resilience that everybody showed. Like I, I was struck by Jim Burke, our other colleague, who who tells the story of his day 
just saying we're not going to let them win, right? So if we don't come back into the city, if we don't carry on with our work, we, we let them win. And that, that was very striking to me. And um, really, I think is a good way to think about it, uh, you know, as we look back those two decades. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and I think that what Jonas said was, was very important in some ways, too, because I think in a lot of ways, your, your first instinct in a situation like this is, is um, you know, the human one. And, and what should I be doing to help? Um, but then as a reporter, as a journalist, I mean, you have to think, how does that apply to, to your job and what should you be doing to cover it? And, and what does your audience want and need to know? about the situation. And, and I think especially with PR week, because so much of the industry is based in New York, that's, that's a lot of people that were doing different things and a lot of things that are uh, worthy of coverage. So it's, it's great that they did that, that they did that at the time. I think it, I also always think of um, the people who worked at the wall street journal at the time, because their offices were, were so close to ground zero. Um, and you read about the flexibility that they had to have and how they had to to do different things to you know get the get the next day's issue out and and to to really cover the story that was so close to them and that's that's another great example as well yeah i think um the point jonah makes is well what what is a trademark about pr going to report on in the wake of an, a terror attack like that and he says we we had an important role to play an industry's a community a tight knit one we knew there were people who would be directly involved in those events and affected by them. So we, you know, had a duty just like any other media outlet to reflect that for our community. And um, I think the thing that that I really take from it, and just to sort of wrap this up, Frank, is lessons that we could maybe learn now that that in the in the days following the whole country pulled together, didn't it? Not just the country. I think the, the whole of the world was behind the America and was supportive. And um, everywhere people from New York went, right, they felt that support throughout the country, no matter what anyone's politics, religion was, whatever. And uh, that that really meant a lot. And I know uh, Jim mentioned the first sort of trade show he went to in Atlanta and how, how that meant a lot to him personally. So I think we could draw a lesson from that these days, right? We, you know, together we are so much stronger, aren't we? And um, that that's the way we can get things done. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I, I think you can, I, I can even remember that. And um you know, just people from all over the country wanting to talk to people from New York about their experiences and, um, you know, did they know anybody and things like that. And I, I, yeah, I do think that's true. Yeah. All right, Frank, listen, thanks for joining me. Um, appreciate your input and um, do check out all our coverage on PRWeek.com. We've put together a, a, a chunk of content there to recognize this um, sad but important milestone. Our our thoughts are, as always, with all the families of the, and friends of those affected. I know it's a tough time of year every year, but we should um, celebrate their lives and their legacy. And um, as I say, hopefully pull together. Thank you to Josh Chairman for joining us as well from the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. Um, but that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.